Exploring how we can transform our communities in the 21st century with the support of St. Ives Chambers, RHE Global, and me learning. Welcome. This is the Community Safety Podcast with your host, Jim Nixon. Today, the Community Safety Podcast turns its attention to domestic abuse. My guest has been working in the field of domestic abuse for 23 years, and she's also a survivor of domestic abuse herself. This really is a must-to-listen episode, but please be warned, some of the content is upsetting and graphic. Please take a listen to a snippet of today's interview. One night I went out, my friend said to me, come on, let's go out. Um, you need to kind of clear your head. You need to just have a bit of normality. Um, so my mum had my little girl. I went out, came back. She came back with me, picked my daughter up from my parents, came back to my flat. And I w- opened the front door. And as soon as I opened the front door, I I just sensed he was in there. And I, I said to my friend, he's he's in here. And she, she laughed and said, don't be silly, just being paranoid. And um, went into what was our bedroom. Asked my friend to open one side of our wardrobe unit. And she did. She was still laughing. Asked her to open the other side. And as she did, he, he jumped out with, and he, he had a knife. It's now time for the Community Safety Podcast. Welcome to the Community Safety Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Nixon. I've been working in community safety for over 25 years. This podcast will explore how we can transform communities in the 21st century. I'm delighted to introduce today's guest to Sharon Bryan. For the last 23 years, Sharon has worked in the field of domestic abuse. She's also the survivor of domestic abuse. In 2000, she joined the Women's Aid Federation of England Board of Trustees. In 2020, Sharon set up Sharon Bryan Consultancy, a community interest company. This involves running the Freedom Programme to women who have or are still experiencing domestic abuse. And then in January 2021, Sharon joined the award-winning National Centre for Domestic Violence, where she's Head of Partnerships and Development for Domestic Abuse Services. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on the Community Safety Podcast. Thank you for asking me. Uh, It's brilliant to have you on board. We've been wanting to cover domestic abuse for a few weeks now, so it's fantastic having you on board. I always start off with my interviews because I think it's always important that the audience get a, know a little bit about you before we get into the main part of the interview. So tell me a little bit about Sharon growing up and what life was like for you. Oh, okay, so um, I grew up in Camberley, which is a town in Surrey. Um, and I still don't really live that far away from Camberley. Um, had a pretty ordinary upbringing, I think. Um, parents didn't have much money, but you know, we had myself and my brother had what we we wanted and what we needed. Um, I went to school, normal stuff, really, nothing out of the ordinary, to be quite honest. And what was it? What was it kind of like growing up in Camberley around that time? What was what was the community like? It was it. We I grew up on a, a council estate. Um, my parents had got a house there uh, before either my brother or I were born. My brother's 10 years older than me. And um, there were only kind of their row of houses when they moved in. But that quickly, uh, the estate uh, the estate quickly expanded. And um, a lot of it was used for the overflow from the London overflow. Okay. Um, so a lot of the roads on the estate are called are named after London boroughs like Mitcham Road, Sutton Road, Kingston, um, Wimbledon. And um, yeah, it was very, there was shops there, schools were all there. Didn't really need to go off of the estate. It's still one of the biggest estates, but there's a lot, a lot of the properties have been bought now. That's yeah, interesting. Uh, I live on just outside a massive housing estate, and it was a London developer that came over into Birmingham in the nineteen thirties, 
it's quite ironic that all of our streets as well are, are named after London areas. Right. Like you've got like Tottenham Crescent, Twickenham. You know, it's quite ironic actually. Yeah. It, you know, I always wondered why. And then my dad said to me, oh, yeah, it's because this London developer came up in the 30s. So it's quite interesting you say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was just quite a nice, normal childhood, really. Yeah. With no, yeah, that's really good. Good to hear. Same as mine, really. You know, mine was very similar, I think. Um, obviously, when I introduced you, we, um, we I touched on the subject of you being a domestic abuse survivor. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to go into that in a bit more detail and just wondered if you would, you know, explain to the audience what life is like living with an abusive partner. Okay. So um, I met my ex, ex-husband when I was very young, when I was 17. And uh, very quickly, it was quite an intense uh, relationship. It very quickly progressed. And um, I met him in the summer of 1983. And we actually got married in April 1984. So um, I just turned 18. So it was very quick. Don't remember thinking that there was anything particularly odd about that at the time. I can remember quite a few of my mum's friends asking her if I was pregnant, but I wasn't. Um, And we settled into married life. He very, very quickly became quite controlling, um, quite aggressive with me. Uh, And that kind of escalated really over a period of months. I had never experienced anything like that in my, you know, in my childhood. My dad was a very gentle man. Um, So I didn't really know, you know, he used to say sorry. Up until this point, he wasn't physically abusive. And, you know, he used to say sorry and I used to forgive him. Um, I fell pregnant with my eldest daughter Um, And she was born in August 1985. Very, very quickly after she was born, he became physically abusive. Um, Remember that he, when she was about three weeks old, he, we were both been invited to this party and I didn't want to go. I'd had a cesarean section. I didn't, didn't feel up to it. Um, So he went and at the time we were living, still living with my parents we were waiting for the local authority to house us and he didn't come back it was very late i called the house where he was at the party and i could hear him in the background saying tell her i'm not here that sort of thing and he came in about two o'clock in the morning i guess and i thought well you know i'm I'm just i'm not going to argue with him about it it's late my parents are in the room next door the baby's asleep and he, he came in the bedroom with a can of lager in his hand. And uh, he started sort of trying to get me into an argument, which I wasn't I wasn't playing party to. Um, and then he just lifted the can of lager and pulled it all over my head. So I had to get up, tried to get out past him to get to the bathroom. And at that point, he punched me in the stomach. I realise now that I probably should have ended things there and then because and because I didn't and because I forgave him I then gave him the green light really to carry on with the physical abuse which he did um and lots of things happened and my I was kind of experiencing that until uh 1987 and that was kind of when the big the big thing happened <laughs> Just touching up on what you said there was that things kind of escalated once your eldest daughter was born. Mm. What do you think was the reason for that? At the time, I didn't. I didn't have a clue. Um, I know now, obviously, having worked in the field for so many years, that it's about um, you know a, a, about attention, about the abuser not feeling feeling that they're not centre of attention, feeling jealous almost, I guess. Uh, at the time, I, d- I didn't have a clue what that, what it was about. Um, but, yeah, so I think that he was just very kind of very put out that he wasn't the centre of my world anymore. Yeah, I've heard this a few times, and I saw this quite a bit when I was in the police. Um, went to quite a few domestics where 
a child had recently been born and um I, I have to say in a lot of cases the male it was the male partner that was obviously the abuser mm. um and i think you're right i think jealousy plays a big part you know one minute they're ultimately the only person in that partner's life or wife's life and all of a sudden you know you've got another little bundle that you're looking after mm. and your attention has to be drawn towards that new life doesn't it yeah yes of course yeah um it was the the physical abuse was was getting pretty bad um and it it got to a point where i knew i i had to do something um and a neighbor of mine at the time had 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 similar problems with her husband and she said to me why don't you go to solicitor that i went to and and talk to them about getting an injunction didn't know what an injunction was didn't know anything about it didn't know anybody that was going through it um to me i was the only person that was going through this i didn't really understand it at all i went to saw the solicitor and she suggested you know definitely get a non-molestation injunction but i wasn't prepared at that point to leave him i i guess it was for me it was the last ditch attempt to try and get him to change so went to court got an order ex party um, so he didn't know about it at the time. Um, process was very simple. But of course, I was at home when the process server came to serve it on him, which was the first he knew of it. And he just came into the living room and and looked at me and read it and he just tore it up. It meant nothing to him. And and the violence didn't stop. And uh, the the order was for three months and that so that was in around about the October and the order expired around about the second week of the following January. Um, during that three months, there was a serious incident where he actually broke my nose. Um, and there were well, there were many, many incidents. But I think if somebody asks me what what was the worst thing? I I always think of the broken nose. Actually, it wasn't the worst thing. The worst thing was probably that you stabbed me. But for me, it was the broken nose because that is the, the worst pain I have ever felt in my life. Um and again, I didn't I didn't report him. I was I was just too um too afraid to. And then on Christmas Day, January, uh December the 25th, about two o'clock in the morning, he We'd been out, um, he'd been drinking, I was driving. My parents had our daughter. I actually lived on the same state as them. And he, um, we got back to our flat and he just said, get into the passenger seat. And he got into the driver's seat and he took off onto the M3 all over the road. I was absolutely terrified. My daughter was in the back seat awake. Um, he pulled into a service station and basically he raped me. At the time, I didn't see it as rape. He was my husband, so I, I didn't see, you know, I didn't look at it like that. And I was going to I was going to leave that night and we got home. I don't even know how we got home alive because he was so drunk, but we got home. And I don't know, it was Christmas Day morning. Christmas tree was up, you know, picture the pictured scene. And I thought, I just can't, I can't do this. I got nowhere to go. My parents didn't know anything. Didn't know he was hitting me, didn't know anything. Um, so I thought, okay, I'm going to see this through until the new year, which I did. And it was terrible. The Christmas was awful. And then on January the 4th, I decided that's it. And to this day, Jim, I don't know why it was that day. I'd always thought it would happen the way it happened, but I didn't, I don't know why it, it, it was that day rather than a week later or a week before. I, I got up, he was due to go back to work. He said, I'm not going. Um, ring up and tell him I'm not going. So I rang up and his boss said, why isn't he coming in? And I said, because he can't be, he can't be bothered. And his eyes kind of snapped open and I thought, oh God, this, this is it now. And uh, 
he got up and he hit me and they went back to bed and I thought, right, I've got to leave. This is it. I've got to do this now. Didn't know where I was going to go, but I threw some clothes into a suitcase in the same bedroom as he was, but he'd gone back to sleep, grabbed my daughter and got in the car and just drove and, and actually ended up at my cousin's house in another area that he he had never been there. So I knew that, I, I mean, I hadn't seen her for years, actually, but luckily she still lived there. And he, I knew he would never find me there because he didn't, he'd never been there. Um, and I phoned my solicitor and told her, look, you know, this has happened. He's breached it dozens of times. And she called the police. She pretty much took over, called the police. And, and the police came to my cousins that evening and took statements from me. I said to them, I told them what had happened at the service station. And one of the police officers said, that's, well, that's rape, isn't it? I said, no, because he's my husband. And they said, no, but it is. And apparently because the the non-molestation order um, prevented um, prevented him from having his what was called conjugal rights, they were able to go ahead with, with that. Um, but in the meantime, he went into court the next day, the family court, I had to go for the breach of the injunction. And he... He was sentenced to two months in prison, which everybody was really shocked about. Remembering this was 1987. Um, my solicitor didn't think he would get a prison sentence, but he did. I knew. He looked across at me and just mouthed the words, I'll kill you. And I, and I was absolutely terrified. And it didn't matter what the police said to me or my family said to me. I knew that he, he was going to do something. But he went in and he did a month of that, two months. And in that month that he was away, I started divorce proceedings. Kind of try and sort of like pick up the pieces. Um, he came out after a month and um, he was only out for about a week. He was taking no notice of, of the orders that were in place, taking no notice of the, the police actually gate arrested him when he came out and charged him with um, GBH. I think it was GBH of my nose um, and also charged him with rape, which was the first time a husband had been charged of this. Um, but he didn't. He didn't take any notice. He still kept coming round. And then um, one night I went out. My friend said to me, come on, let's go out. Um, you need to kind of clear your head. You need to just have a bit of normality. Um, so my mum had my little girl. I went out, came back. She came back with me, picked my daughter up from my parents, came back to my flat. And I w opened the front door. And as soon as I opened the front door, I I just sensed he was in there. And I, I said to my friend, he's he's in here. And she she laughed and said, don't be silly, just being paranoid. Um, but I it was kind of like, I always think it was like one of those horror films. But I was I was going around turning on all the lights because in my mind I was thinking, nobody turns on the lights in these films. Like I'm switching on all the lights. And um went into what was our bedroom. Um and my little girl was just hovering around really and asked my friend to open one side of our wardrobe unit and she did she was still laughing asked her to open the other side and as she did he he jumped out with and he he had a knife and i fell back on the bed and he and he brought the knife down and i put my hand up to to protect myself and the knife went through my hand and then as he came up again with the knife, she was behind him and she took the knife out of his hand. It was a split second thing. Um, I didn't even realise that he'd stabbed me for what seemed like a long time, but probably was only a few seconds. Um, and then when I looked down at my hand, I could see I could see that he'd stabbed me and it was bleeding. And he my friend rang the police they came and 
by this time he'd gone, he'd, he'd, he'd run off. And I still didn't, <laughs> still didn't tell him. I, I, I didn't, I told him that he'd been to the flat, but I didn't tell him that he'd stabbed me. And I had my hand wrapped in a tea towel behind my back. And they went and time went on and I couldn't feel, I started to lose the feeling in my, in my thumb. And my friend said, I need to take to the hospital. This isn't right. So she she took me to the hospital with my little girl. It was, it was in the middle of the night by this time. And they had to, um, basically it severed the nerves in my hand. And they didn't couldn't deal with it there. It was the local hospital. So they told me that I would have to go to Roehampton in London, where they specialised in nerve damage. <coughs> and... So I was in there all night and the next morning I could hear all this commotion outside. I was in a side room and basically it was my husband had turned up and was demanding to see me and they knew what he'd done. Um, they wouldn't let him see me. So he was smashing up the ward outside. Eventually they let him in. They all stood around me, had all these doctors and nurses stand around me. He still had like a white flying jacket on with all my blood down it and he was crying and saying you know he was sorry and I, I I just said it's 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 too late everyone knows now you know I can't we can't go back now and again he ran off and he went to our doctor's surgery which was on the estate where we lived doctor's surgery happened to be within within seeing distance of my parents house and my mum actually saw him. By this time, she knew because my friend had taken my little girl around there about six o'clock in the morning. She had to tell them what had happened. And my mum actually saw him pull up in the car and go into the doctor's surgery. So she rang the police and said, look, he's in the doctor's surgery. You need to get him. That's where he is. Um, unbeknown to me, uh, he apparently had just walked straight into the doctor's room, consulting room, and, and literally threw the woman out that was in there being seen to by the doctor and, and said to the doctor, I need help. I, I've stabbed my wife. At that point, the police turned up and, um, and arrested him. Uh, the first I knew of all of this was when I came round from surgery in Roehampton, St. Mary's in Roehampton. And um and was told that that this had all been happening while I was basically uh having surgery. And and he was on remand for about a year, and then he was convicted at the old Bailey of um of rape um and of GBH with intent and with ABH. Um, so it was the broken nose, the stabbing um, and the rape on Christmas morning. It was cut at that point. It was I didn't need to go to give evidence because he changed his plea right at the last moment. He pleaded guilty. But what he did say was that <laughs> that he'd found me in bed with three of his friends. Um, at the time, I was quite pleased that I hadn't I didn't need to give evidence because I was I was very scared I didn't know what really understand what was going on since then I've thought I wish I had I wish I had have had my day in court you know because I could have said I could have told them uh, and I didn't get that chance but he was sentenced to six and a half years at um at the old bailey um and um to my knowledge he was the first husband to be convicted of rape um and that kind of went through a few years later i think it became it became law that that could happen it was quite a difficult one to i i think for them to i think i, I don't know jim if he would if i don't know if they would have been found guilty of that to be honest if he hadn't have changed his plea I've, it's hard at the best of times now you know it back then it surely would have been even harder um but uh, that was that was it he changed his plea and uh, he got six and a half years so um yeah <laughs> long story 
Need a drink, excuse me. <laughs> I've made a real point of not interrupting that that account because it is unbelievable. So I just did not want to interrupt you because that is an incredible story. And I'm just feeling what you were going through. So I don't know what it was like to actually experience it at the time. A couple of questions for me. Just want to take you back to when he takes over the vehicle on the M3 and mm. he's obviously taking you to that service station. One of the things that sort of sprung into my mind, and I think it's springing into the minds of the audience, is you said that your daughter obviously was in the back of the car. Yeah. So question for me is, when when he raped you, was your daughter present? Yeah, she was. She was watching, yeah. And was she awake? Yes. Yes, she was. Wow. So one of my other questions was, and we talk a lot about this on the on the podcast, is we talk a lot about the impact that domestic abuse has on young children mm, mm. and how that trauma can, you know, create problems for them in later life. Mm. Um, you know, what, what are your views on that? What do you think around, you know, the trauma that children experience when they are, you know, caught up in these abusive relationships? Well, unfortunately, that wasn't the end of it for her, really, um, although it should have been. Um, when he, shortly after he was sentenced, he t took me to court for contact with her and the court gave him that contact and... Um, basically forced me to take her to prison to see him on contact visits. And I was very clearly told by the judge that if I did not do that, then I would be in trouble. I would be in breach of that court order. Of course, he didn't really want to see her. He wanted to get at me, you know, and see me. Um, but it's very sad that my daughter's earliest memory is, is of um, a prison, to be honest. Um, when he came out of prison, she was close on, I think she was six years old because he didn't do the whole six and a half years. It, you know, he was on, he'd been on remand for a year and then had time taken off. And, uh, for a while it was supervised contact. Um, and then I was kind of persuaded to, to drop that and let him have an on the social services weren't involved at all i i actually went to social services and asked for support and they said i didn't need it um so i had literally no one to to help me and i didn't know of any and no one told me of anyone that could help me uh so i very begrudgingly said okay he can have un um unsupervised contact and that went on for probably about five years. Um, she she never really liked going, but she went. Um, but that, over a period of time, her behaviour became really difficult. Um, she became quite aggressive herself. And when she was 11, I, um, I went into her bedroom to do something make the bed whatever and she had a whiteboard in there and and she'd written on it I want to die so wow I thought okay no, I don't, that's this isn't right so I took her to the doctor straight away and um, the doctor asked to speak to her on on her own so I left the room and she told the doctor that on contact visits he was physically abusing her and emotionally abusing her and and the form that that took was he would she would go up get up to go to the toilet he would say no you're not you're not getting up you're not going to the toilet until i tell you you're going to the toilet and she would hang on and then she would wet herself and then he would hit her because she'd wet herself that's that sort of thing um and then of course it all went the doctor said you need to go to court you need to get this contact stopped so i i went to a solicitor I, I went back to court I had the contact stopped eventually the court stopped his contact it was too late by then she was she'd been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder because she remembered and she had flashbacks of that night in the service station amongst other incidents um and 
had to see a child psychologist for months and she was on antidepressants for a while. And, you know, it was all, it was all a little bit too, too late to stop it. You know, but nobody listened to me at the time when it, when it may not have damaged her as much. So, yeah, it's, it's, and, and to be honest, she's 35 now. She's got two children of her own and she's a fantastic mum, but it has left her, I think she would agree with me, very wary of relationships, very wary of the men she enters relationships with. Um, and she can't trust them because of him. But, you know, where's he? Well, you know, he's just living his life wherever he's there. I know where he is, but I'm not going to say. But, you know, just living his life and doing whatever he wants to do. Um, and, and putting it behind him, you know. So I get I, it is a the effect, the impact on children is something that I've always felt really, really strongly about because I know how it impacted on my child, you know. Yeah, that just sums it up for me, Sharon, at the end of the day is exactly what I'm saying. And I think this is why, you know, sometimes when we see um, in particular boys, I'm not saying always boys, but I think, when, you know, when you see them sort of later on in life, you know, displaying violent tendencies, I think some of it, you know, is learnt behaviour, isn't it? Yes, it is, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't say, you know, his, his upbringing wasn't great um, and he's spent some time in the care system um i don't know i don't i don't think it was learned behavior from from anything he witnessed even though he didn't have a very stable upbringing um but it was definitely it was definitely a power and control thing for for him did he um did he prior to meeting you and i appreciate you were both quite young but had he sort of being arrested before for violent related yeah. stuff you know now you know obviously you probably didn't know that at the time but what was his history like yeah it was he he had a a list as long as your arm as my mum would have said um of kind of fighting sorting police officers that sort of thing i mean he was two years older than me so he was i think it was about 21 when we got married um yeah, he was very young. Yeah, um, but yeah, he had he had quite a lot of previous, but none not um, not not violence towards women. Funnily enough, but um, since I know that he's done it since to women, but I think I was kind of the first one that he was, the first woman that he was violent to. Just an incredible story, as I've said already. You know and leads on really to your life now and how you are helping a number of people to tackle this um, horrendous crime, you know, that goes on in a lot of families within not only just the UK, but across the world. So tell me about your work with the, um, you know, the National Centre for Domestic Violence. I, I worked with them quite extensively when I was in the police, mm. um, but there'll be some of our audience that don't know about them. Can you um, tell us about the work there? Yeah. So um, I've I've known about the National Centre for Domestic Violence for years and, and actually used them uh, in my job. I worked in uh, Westminster for 16 years and used them often um, in the last sort of 10 years. Um for for female clients that I had, so the National Centre for Domestic Violence is specialises in um, obtaining uh, protective orders, so non molestation orders, occupation orders, and uh, prohibited steps orders. But but the predominantly they deal with non molestation orders, and um, the. Uh, the organisation was started from um, a guy called Steve Connor, and uh, he was practising law at the um, Guildford University. And uh, let me just check my notes because <laughs> I'm sure I don't want to get this wrong. And he, a friend of his, needed a um, needed a non molestation order, but they couldn't get legal aid, and they were told. Um, that it would cost in the regions of a couple of thousand pounds. And so he thought, 
that's that's not right. So he started up NCDB. And that is that is why we exist, really, is to help the people that, for whatever reason, can't get legal aid um, and, and, you know, have no maybe have no recourse to public funds or work and, and are above the above the threshold for, for getting legal aid. So and we will go we, we got we have a pro bono department and um, when a call comes through to uh, what we call our first steps team, they will do an assessment of that person and see if they are entitled to legal aid. If they are, then they'll be allocated a, a solicitor um, who will do the work that's needed um, and take their statement. If they if they aren't eligible for legal aid, they're passed on to our pro bono department and they will help. Them. So effectively, they're then a litigant in person, um, but they will be helped and supported with their statement and all the paperwork, the bundle, if you like, that they need to to go into court to get that order. And so basically, I mean, I know the police do a lot of referrals as yes. well, but if somebody wanted to contact NCDV, what would, what routes can they take to, um, is there a contact number they can phone? Yeah, there's there's loads of, there's several different ways of um, referring. And of course, uh, people can self-refer. So we also take referrals from male victims, so female and male victims. Um, there's an app that you can download for free um, that you can uh, using the app um there is uh online there's refer direct on the front page on the home page of, of the ncdb website is that is that form that referral form um you can text as well and you can call and uh yeah three four or five different ways you can refer into um ncdb and last year i think Pretty sure we had 95,000 referrals from the police and from other domestic abuse support agencies. And of that, obviously, for some, for one reason or another, they don't all go on to, to go to court. Some people change their mind, um, you know, for various different reasons. But of that, that amount of referrals, we secured just under 10,000 non-molestation orders um, for people. And of that amount, four, about 4,100 were people that could not get legal aid, so would have otherwise fallen fallen through the gaps. That's fantastic. I mean, it's just such a, a great charity. And as I say, I know from my own personal experience, I would literally refer somebody say on a night shift or on a late shift and I know that they may contact more or less straight away the next day yeah. they are absolutely amazing I just couldn't believe and they look one thing I always used to like about you guys as well I'd always get an email to update me on what was yes. going on as well to a point which I thought was brilliant throughout you know. the whole process um there are certain points in the process that are kind of trigger points where emails or text messages will be sent to not, not only the victim, but also the, the referrer to say, okay, we've got this far now, and we've been allocated to a solicitor now, um, the statement's been done. So each of these points, so they always know, the victim always knows as well at what point they are at in, in the process. Um, we've also got the ASSIST database. I don't know whether you ever use that, but it's No, tell us about that. Tell us about that. It's um basically it's the, it's a database that holds all of the orders on there and the um the certificates of service on there as well. So if what normally happens, I'm sure you you'll know that you know police are called maybe in the middle of the night, they go out. Um, the the victim may say, look, I've got an injunction. I can't find my paperwork, I, I, but I've got an injunction. Then the police have to try and find this injunction to be able to to see the power of arrest to to make the arrest, and that is kind of just fraught with so many problems. So assist the assist database holds all of the orders or all of the orders that we've done anyway. So the police can just go back to the police station log into the database and they can then print that order off. They can see it's been served on on the, the perpetrator and that's it. They've got what they need to make an arrest. That's fantastic. I didn't know about that. How long has that been in? I, 
I don't don't quote me on this. I don't know. I think it's a fair while, but I've only been there since January, so I'm still kind of really learning yeah, learning brilliant. the ropes there. Yeah, because um, I mean, I mean, I've obviously dealt with a lot of civil injunctions, and it is very frustrating sometimes. I mean, you don't always physically need the paperwork, but I, I tell you what, that's very very useful to actually see the order and also yeah. see the certificate of service, which is so important. You know, if you know to to sort of um, you know guarantee that that order is live. Yeah. So that's yeah. really important. Fantastic, fantastic work. So my, and- my my role is a new role. So really, it's I'm I'm just developing it really to kind of forge partnerships and um, with other organisations, not just not just domestic abuse support services, but but any other organisations that come into contact with people that are experiencing domestic abuse in their role, you know, so housing and all, all those sorts of places. Um, and just trying to sort of raise awareness of, of us. And being that sort of my story, if you like, started with that non-molestation order. Um, and if it hadn't have been for that, you know, I don't know, I maybe wouldn't have had that month's breathing space that I had or had the support that I that I had from the police. So for me, it's, you know, it's, it's really important and, and a really vital service for oh, people. Usually, yeah. Obviously, we've touched on, you know, you, you just mentioned there really about it's not always, you know, some people change their minds. Mm. It's not an easy thing, you know. I think it's very easy sometimes for somebody to say, just just leave, just leave them, you know. It's it's not that simple, is it, Sharon? You know, no. I just wondered if you could just, you know, touch on that for us and for the audience. You know, what advice would you give to somebody that is experiencing, you know, the kind of stuff that you've been through now, what what advice would you give them? I would say that un- unless you you will you will know when you're ready to leave, and I have always said that if you leave before, if you leave because the police are you know trying to persuade you to, or you leave because social services are maybe involved in with your case and they want you to leave, if it's not your time to leave, you'll end up going back. And and things will be worse. You you has to be the right time for you. I used to have people, you know, friends of mine, just couldn't understand it. They used to say to me, "What what what's the matter with you? Do you enjoy it? What you know? What what is wrong with you?" I couldn't answer that question, and I probably still can't. I don't think I can now. It was just, it wasn't the right time for me to do it, and and the time when I did it was the right time. People will say to you, you know, why don't you just leave? The question should be, Jim, why does he not stop abusing her or him? You know, um, because it, the, that question in itself, why don't you just leave, is is kind of very victim blaming. You're already your your mind and your brain is already so full of of everything. What am I going to do for money? Where am I going to live? Um, oh, is is are the kids going to miss him? Um, what what will I do? Uh, all all the problems that come along with leaving. It's just not that simple. Even if you haven't got children, it is not that simple. People think there seems to be this myth that it's free to stay in a refuge. It isn't. They cost a lot of money. In London, they're over £500 a week. Refuges are great, but if you work, you've got to then move area. You've got to give up your job. You can't go into a refuge because you won't get housing benefit because you work. So you're stuck. What do you do? Um, there is The housing is in a terrible state. Um, all over the country there's nowhere for you know councils to move people um there's just so many so many barriers to leaving an abusive relationship that it almost feels safer to stay because when they say to you if you leave me i will kill you that isn't just an idle threat that that could and does happen. And, you know, we lo- in the first three weeks of the first lockdown, 16 women were killed. 
normally it's kind of about two women on average a week in this country. In the first three weeks of the first lockdown, it was 16. So that just gives you some kind of idea about how difficult it is to 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 live with someone like that, you know, and also to leave. I wanted to ask you that question for that very reason, because I knew the answer you were going to give me, but I think it's really good that it comes from somebody like you that's experienced it, you know, because I want to get that across to professionals today that are listening to this podcast, you know, just how complex a situation and issue it is. And it, you're absolutely right. It's not that simple. And I also agree with you that all of the victims that I've helped over the years have always been the ones that have made that decision. You know, I haven't made that decision for them because I would never do that for them. They had to make it for themselves. Mm -hmm. When they were ready, they knew when they were ready and nobody in the world is going to change, you know, change that decision, are they? No. I mean, the, the most common thing I, I have said to me when, when I've, um, most of my career I've worked frontline with women that have experienced domestic abuse um, and for the last 11 well yeah for the last 11 years I was co-located with children's services is you know why why are they the ones that have to jump through the hoops why can't why can't they force him to um, do programs or do whatever there, there needs to be more there needs to the perpetrators need to be held more accountable. Don't ask me how you do that. I don't know, but it it feels very unfair to women, as we're talking about sort of women being predominantly the victims of domestic abuse. Um, it feels very unfair to them that they have to they have to be the ones that that tell him to leave. They have to be the ones that that will not let him in the house. When you've got someone bashing at the door threatening to kill you you're going to open the door <laughs> you know you're not going to say i'm sorry you know social services say you can't come in no you can't do you're not going to do that you're you're living you're walking on eggshells literally the whole time that, that was going to be my next question actually i've always felt and this this was a big one for me when i was in the police as well was that i honestly didn't think that we did enough to tackle the offenders you know it was it, there was work obviously going on and I think what really love about you know if there is anything to love about your situation was that the help and support you actually did get in the 80s because I think mm. the police weren't particularly good at dealing with domestic violence for a number of years I mm. think it's a lot better now but I, I still sit here today thinking we should do more to try and tackle the offenders yeah I mean I, I think there has recently been some uh, money released from central government to to um, kind of go into more more focused work on perpetrator work, perpetrator programs, and so forth. And of course, that that helps hugely. But it's it's kind of it doesn't seem it doesn't seem enough for me. Um, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Jim, to be honest, um, it's a very complex of, answer. It is, I, and I, I, I really like um, the sort of mission NCDV's mission, if you like, is to is to make domestic abuse socially unacceptable. Because to eradicate it completely, sadly, I don't think we're ever going to do because of the society in which we live. But if we can make it socially unacceptable, that's you know that that will be a big thing too. You know, like we did with um, you know seatbelts and um, drink driving and uh, all of those things. And it's still going to take a long time, but uh, hopefully, you know, with the new domestic abuse bill that's going through the Lords at the moment, once that comes out, there'll be quite a few things in there that will will help. I hope. No, I totally agree with you. I think it, you know there does need to be that you know a, a stigma attached you know if you are a domestic abuse offender whether you're male or female there has mm. to be that kind of um that stigma attached to it like you've said and and that's how i think it will be a massive help to changing how people you know in society view it and i think that that's got to be a good thing so i think you know people like us have just got to keep raising awareness and doing what we can 
Um, and I think, you know, if we can all collaborate, you know, we, we can make steps in the right direction, in my in my mm, opinion. We've yeah. all got to work together on this. Absolutely. Yeah, we do. Just before we wrap up the interview, I just wanted to touch on the um, the great work that you do with the Freedom Program as well, because I know that's kind of a bit of a volunteering sort of role that you do as part of your uh, community interest um, company. Hmm. Tell yeah. us a bit about the uh, the Freedom Program and how people could potentially access it. Uh, so the Freedom Program was developed by Pat Craven, um, who used to be a probation officer and who saw that there was a gap in you know service provision she developed the freedom program uh many years ago now and it's it's now kind of rolled out all over the country i was very very lucky to have been trained to facilitate the freedom program by pat herself uh in 2014 2015 um and it was something that i did i facilitated when i worked in westminster with uh with women that whose cases whose children were on child protection plans or um child in need plans and um since working at ncdb i've carried that on but in my own time sort of through my community interest company so the the program is um 11 weeks usually around 11 weeks long each session is um an hour and a half and it we it we go through kind of with the with thing we talk about the dominator so it doesn't have to be um women don't have to sort of tell their personal stories if they don't want to my experience is within two or three weeks they're all talking about their own experiences but they don't have to do that so we talk about the dominator um we talk about sort of what you know what are the tactics that he uses so the dominator has sort of several different personas that he can bring to the fore to to be abusive and one's the bully then we might have the head worker the head worker is pretty much um coercive control um the sexual controller the jailer uh and we each week is kind of dedicated to one of these personas of the dominator and we talk about what tactics will he will he display what would we see in um you know a prospective jailer um what are his beliefs where where does he get those beliefs from and how are we as women how are we affected by the jailer and then we always talk about the 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 opposite of the jailer or the opposite of the bully, which would be the, the opposite of the bully would be the friend. So we always talk about that and a healthy relationship as well. I I personally find that um, I mean that since the pandemic, obviously um, all the programs have had to go online. In a way, that's good though because you can you don't have to kind of. Uh, just take women from the area in which you're living. You can take, you know, you can take women from um, up in Scotland or Yorkshire. Uh, one of the facilitators, Rachel, who I believe you know, she she even has women from abroad. Yeah, Rachel Williams. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the biggest thing for me, the and the most common sort of feedback I get is that they women feel that they're not alone. They they feel that they can share their stories and that other pe other women will understand and will listen and believe them and and for them that's very empowering. Um, so yeah, I I do that um, out of work time uh, in the evenings um, and and I, I I love it and it's it for me it's just very very. It's very empowering just for seeing from the first session through to the last session, watching women become stronger. Watching you know? them grow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, it's like what we talked about earlier, that even though we're, you know, you guys are not saying, you know, this is the point you've got to leave. I think what that's going to do is it's going to give them the confidence to make that decision, you know, when the time is right. Exactly. And, and the Freedom Programme will give, it gives women the tools that they need to identify abusive behaviour. Um, and I have had women that have done the programme, that have started the programme, and they've still been with the, the 
the person um, and it's helped them to make that decision to leave. Um, it's, it's never something that we, that I or any of the other facilitators would would force on anyone. It's it's totally up to them if they come. Um, if they don't want to come, that's fine too. If they want to skip weeks, it's 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 down to them. But it's it's the empowerment that they get from being with other women that have had similar experiences to them. Absolutely fantastic program. How can people link in to the Freedom Program? Obviously, I've taken it runs all over the UK. So how it can does. how can people link in? Well, they um, if they they head over to the Freedom Program website, which you type Freedom Program into Google, um, that um, has on it a uh, find a find a local pro, find a program, and um, you will get lists of everybody that's doing doing programs, including me on there. Um, we all do them at different times, different days of the week. Sometimes some are in the day, some are in the evening, some are at the weekends. Um, and you can just can't all of them are being done by Zoom at the moment. And um, you just contact that person. Their contact details are there. Does it cost anything? No, absolutely free. So it's all free. never Fantastic. ever charge. I I fundraise. Um, through my community interest company to be able to run the programs um, and no we, we never none of us ever um, charge anybody to do the Brilliant. program thanks for that information Sharon Sharon we're coming towards the end now is there anything you wanted to cover today that we haven't covered yet you know like a question I haven't asked you I don't think so I can't think of anything just wanted to thank you for being so open and honest with me today it's an incredible journey that you've come on but i just think about all the people that you're helping and you know how you are i always talk about one person can make a difference and you're you're just you know testament to that that one person can make a difference so the more of us that sort of you know get involved with tackling domestic abuse like yourself the more we're going to go towards you know at least reducing it significantly over the next few years. I, I always get asked a lot, um, why do I why do I do this job? And my answer is uh, it's a bit <laughs> it's a bit cheesy, but my answer is always the same that I I I do it, I try to be the person that I wish had been there for me and wasn't because it's a very, very lonely place when you don't know who to talk to you don't know if you'll be believed um, and you can be in a room full of people and feel like you're the only person in there. So that has always been my answer. If when people ask me why I do this job, it is to be the person, to try to be the person that I wish I'd have had when it happened to me. It's like a lot of people say, you know, people never really know what's going on behind closed doors, do they? That's very true. Yeah. You know, you can go to a party and, you know, Potentially, the perpetrator can be the life and soul of the party, and everybody mm-hmm. loves them. But actually, nobody really knows truly no. what goes on behind that closed door. No, the the the, the sort of classic perpetrator of domestic abuse is a lovely guy, um, or girl, um, and they will do anything for anyone. Um, it's yeah, you never really know what somebody is like. Sharon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's um i've immensely enjoyed the information that you've given and i'm sure when the audience listen to this they are going to get an awful lot from it so thank you from me and also from the audience um thank you also to the audience today for listening to the community safety podcast please like rate and subscribe to the, the community safety podcast we really do want to spread our message across to as many people as possible so tell your friends tell your colleagues Let's get as many people on board in changing communities in the 21st century and we'll catch you on the next episode. Whoa, that interview with Sharon Bryan absolutely blew me away today. It's so important that we raise more and more awareness around domestic abuse, what people go through and also how they can get the appropriate help and support to break away from abusive relationships can't thank Sharon enough for you know sharing that horrific story with us 
so hopefully we can help save others. Thank you so much again for listening to the Community Safety Podcast. We really do appreciate you listening in. Please like, rate and subscribe to the Community Safety Podcast. We really want to get our mission across to as many people as possible. Please tell your friends, please tell your colleagues and we'll catch you on the next episode. You've been listening to the Community Safety Podcast. With thanks for support from St. Ives Chambers, RHE Global and Me Learning. Join us again next time to help us explore how we can transform our communities in the 21st century, 21st century. on the Community Safety Podcast with Jim Nixon. Jim Nixon.